0: Um, I'm gonna to watch Toy Story, and i will going have chicken for lunch. I love you, down I'll give you a kiss. Oh
1: wow, that was totally unprompted. Okay, um, what do you think of my podcast, The Dad Pod?
0: What do you think? Uh, uh,
1: no, you answer. The, do you like my podcast?
0: Do you like my cough, Tony? <laughs> Your what? My coat <laughs> That's I close love enough. Story, quick.
1: Hello. I'm Dave Berry and three years ago my daughter Evie was born as was this podcast My Dad Pod and over the years it has given me a great excuse to speak to a range of interesting people about their interesting lives and of course parenting and this time out I'm joined by a novelist screenwriter and CBE for his services to literature he's also a father to two sons it's Anthony Horowitz hey Anthony
0: Hello Dave, how are you today?
1: Very good, thank you. Um, So the latest mystery in your Hawthorne series is out on the 18th of August. Now, in my line of work, my day job as a DJ means I get sent a lot of music in advance, and I'm really grateful for that, so I get to hear stuff before it's released. I'm not often sent books, and I got sent a copy of your book, so I've already read it. And in my household... I'm a fan, my wife's a fan, my mum and dad are both fans, my sister, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and I've had to keep it a closely guarded secret because I don't want to ruin it for them. <laughs> and so the same mentality must apply to this conversation because it's yet to come out. So we're going to tread carefully and I'll follow your lead. But what can people
0: expect from the new book? Well, I, I'm, thank you for your kind words, but the first thing I've got to ask you, and I'm afraid I can't resist this, is did you guess the ending? No. Oh, that's good. Few, we can continue to talk as friends. No, I, I did not guess the ending. Um, okay. I think
1: it's fair to say, uh, the book, uh, the Twist of a Knife is, is its title, by the way. What's great about it is, is that the Horowitz, he's in at the deep end in this one, Anthony.
0: I am indeed. This is a series, the Hawthorne series, which is a slightly unusual detective series. And but, our Daniel Hawthorne, an out-of-work detective, has hired a writer to write books about him in order, basically, to make money and split the profits 50-50. But where things go a bit sort of wobbly and pear shaped is that the right of the clerz to write the books is me. So I'm actually in my own books as a sort of a as a sort of very reluctant sidekick, following two paces behind a detective who I don't even terribly like. But in this book, <laughs> Twist of a knife, I am desperate for him to help me because I am the one who's been accused of the murder. And the setup is very simple. A play of mine is performed in London. On the first night he gets a venomous review from a critic called Harriet Throsby, who the next day is found dead with a knife in her chest the knife belongs to me it has my fingerprints on it I've been seen on a CCTV camera close to our house all the clues add up and only Hawthorne can save me from a sort of a from the end of my writing career to say the very least. Well, it's fantastic. And the relationship that you've built amongst, you know,
1: between yourself um, and Hawthorne, he's kind of he's a brilliant detective. So that's that's the thing. He He's brilliant, but he's very monosyllabic. So as a writer who has been charged with writing about him, you find it really difficult to extract any kind of information from him. And therefore, it makes him incredibly difficult to write about which therefore made it incredibly difficult for you to write about, writing about him, writing about you, writing about
0: him. (laughs) Dave, you have no idea. He's a complete nightmare. I I wish, I wish over and over that any other detective in the world would approach me to do this job except for Hawthorne. But I am stuck with him and he is, he's very difficult, very unpleasant points of view. I don't really agree with his politics, his view of life. He's quite mean to me. He calls me Tony, which is something I really cannot stand. But we sort of rub along. And I think this fourth adventure is in many ways I think it's the most fun adventure I've had with him, despite the fact that the stakes are so high for me personally. The sort of the banter and the sort of the the relationship and the sort of the fact that I'm beginning to learn more about him finally is really showing through. So it's a fourth in a series. I'm planning to do twelve, and I feel that, that it's really on the on the road and beginning to move.
1: Wow. Well, there's a this isn't a plot spoiler at all. There's actually a really nice moment in it where uh, Hawthorne tells you that he went to see your play in the book with his son. And he makes a little, he has a little dig at the end where he says they were two for one tickets anyway, which which was very funny. But but there is that, it's it's nice that he's kind of thawing slightly. There, there's a there's a nice warmth coming in this book.
0: Oh, it's so nice for you to notice it, Dave, and you're absolutely right. One of the sort of the chapters I most enjoyed writing has me hiding from the police at Hawthorne's apartment. And I get put up in his son's bedroom. And the first thing I see there is, although Hawthorne has always told me his son has no interest in my books, there they all are up on the shelf. And actually, he's been reading Alex Ryder and the Diamond Brothers and everything else. And I realized that actually Hawthorne is slightly more invested in me as a human being than I've always thought. There's certain sort of warmth does begin to manifest itself between us. But you know, at the end of the day, I don't think you can write about a detective you don't like. You know, the main character in a, in a detective novel, the detective, has to be likable, even if like Sherlock Holmes or, or Poirot, he could be, you know, egotistical, vain, difficult, um, aloof, whatever, but you've still got somehow to find a way to like him. Um, there's an old adage,
1: write uh, about what, you know, um, and obviously you've taken that to a whole new level in kind of writing about your, yourself. Um, and I was interested between, and obviously this has been throughout the, the, the Hawthorne series, but, but in the latest book. There's a moment in it where you uh talk about the fact that you're currently writing Magpie Murders, another series of books that we really enjoy in my house. And there's even a bit where you're looking at two London landmarks and you have an idea for an Alex Ryder adventure.
0: So and that's absolutely to... true. That's absolutely true, and sorry, it's I jumped true. in there. Yes. No, true. no,
1: not at all. Well, I wanted to know, you know, that that being the case, where do you find the balance between the real you, the real life you're leading as an author and as a person, but also creating a good foil for Hawthorne and someone who is going to be good for for us readers to enjoy on the adventure.
0: A good foil indeed, perhaps for Foil, another of my detectives. But uh, (laughs) yes, I I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, the real me is is actually extraordinarily dull. I mean, he sits in a room by himself for hours on end, staring out of the window, and looking out of St. Paul's Cathedral on the shop when I'm in London, and coming up with sort of crazy ideas for stunts I get to then put into the next book. But the, but the, the, the me that I love, and the me that, that makes my life worth living, is the one that is inside these books. You know, when I'm writing these books, I'm so immersed in them that, that Hawthorne is just t- taking it to extremes, really, because whether I'm writing James Bond, or Alex Ryder, or or Sherlock Holmes, or whatever it is, I live inside. Cause that's where my energy is. That's where my adventure begins. And, you know, from the moment when I wake up in the morning and sort of flick on the computer or take out my fountain pen, it's a sort of a disappearance from the sort of the real world of sort of, you know, stress and worries and politics and the world and, and all the problems that we have out now, uh, at the moment. And it's sort of a, a complete um, escape into into story and adventure and suspense and and twists and turns and mysteries and all the rest of it. And that's all I do.
1: You've said in the past that, that that your own father kind of belittled your ambitions to become a writer. I suppose, ironically, you inherited this incredible library of books from him, which only inspired you further. I, I, I can only imagine. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that even now as a, as a grown man, that, that the escapism, the sense of adventure, was that something that you were really keen to impart and give an opportunity for for young people to get through the Alex Rider series, you know, which has sold 19, 20 million copies so far. So they're, they're beloved of so many young people. But but was the opportunity for for them to feel the escapism, for them to go on an adventure, a, a driving force behind you writing those books?
0: I think that when I began writing the Alex Rider books, and all my kids' books, actually, it was racing for the sort of the rather lonely and sad 10 11-year-old that I had been. You know, I was getting back to my school days and remembering how unhappy I was and how books and stories had sustained me at that time. And so I was always writing for that same little kid. And it's interesting, but well, the first 10 books I wrote are all about rich, unhappy kid at a boring, horrible school with terrible parents. And those books, which are still in print and they're still fine and a lot of them are good fun, never really took off until I started writing the Alex Ryder books, which were just pure escapism, dropped the me out of it and stopped being so egotistical and inward looking and became more universal, if you like. And it's a really interesting aspect of my life that I have become, it is said, this sort of, you know, part of the, the that that writing force that has helped get a whole generation of young people reading. Me and Rowling and Pullman and Morpogo and Wilson and all the others as well. So I'm not alone in this. But it was never my plan. I was never a crusader to get kids reading. Okay. What has happened in my life is I have learned how vitally important reading is for young people. Not just for the lonely little kid that I was, but for all children. Just look at what we've just been through the last two years. You know, this terrible lockdown and the isolation of young people. Stories and books and films and television and, and and, but above all, reading have sustained them and kept them going, I think, in this period, which is why books have, you know, spiked so much and so many more books have sold and reading has become, once again, seen as so terribly valuable. Uh, a common theme
1: here on the Dad Pod, from various parents I talk to, uh, they, they, and they 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 touch on it in different ways. Is surrounding their children with books is a big thing. That's almost like their piece of dad advice, their parenting advice. Would Would you agree with that? Would you, in an ideal world, do you, do you have a house full of books if you're a parent to to children?
0: Well, I do a lot of work with the National Literacy Trust, the NLT, which is a wonderful charity which is helping young people and and families to find books, to find reading and literacy, and to promote literacy. I remember them saying at one stage that one in 10 children in London lived in a house without a single book. And for me, I cannot wow. imagine anything more shocking. We actually have just moved house, we bought a new house. And the first thing I noticed when we, when we started to you know see what we we're going to do with it, no bookshelves. I couldn't believe it. It was a house without books. And to me, if you don't surround a child with books and stories, you are taking away so much in the, in the sense of of warmth and friendship and communication and creativity. Books books and storytelling are such an important, vital part of children. You mentioned Evie, who is, I think, three months, still a little bit young to be read for to. Three years, Anthony. Oh, three yes, years, yeah, yeah, perfect, sorry, yeah, perfect, perfect then. Yeah. Perfect for sort of age then. You must have really been discovering that wonderful moment in the evening when you'd snuggle down on the bed together and bring out the favorite book, the favorite story, and share it together. Yeah. The most precious 20 minutes that a father can have or a mother of course with his or her child i mean it is it is um it is beyond value in the in the development of your relationship with your child where you can share the adventures share their characters share their fears share their laughter and as i often say when i'm giving talks in schools you can be pretty damn sure that when they get onto computer games they're not going to be so keen to share the console with you so it's uh uh, wow it is it is a wonderfully important moment and you know when my two boys were growing up as the fact, the fact, you know, there was a paradox always, and of course, at sort of seven thirty, eight thirty at night, I'm at my most exhausted. I just want to hit the gym and you know, and, and watch TV myself. But instead, there I was in the bedroom doing my stories. And yet, when I look back at my children's childhood, I would have said that the reading sessions we had together, when I both read to them, and also invented stories for them, because of course, being a writer, I couldn't resist sort of turning out my own material for kids. Yeah, wow. But um. But, um but those those were wonderfully happy times. Um it's
1: so lovely to hear you say that. Plus just for the record, I do some of my best reading aloud after a couple of red wines around 8:30 p.m. at Evie's bedtime, I, <laughs> I find that I find the gin helps the storytelling if anything, Anthony. Um, I think a little alcohol does, yes. Um a lovely thing I I read which with the Alex Ryder books and it must be so I wanted to ask you about it because it must feel so special is that now there's a point where the parents grew up reading Alex Rider and they've got their kids. So they come to see you at a festival or a book signing or whatever, and the parents are as gleeful as their kids. That must be that's such a precious thing, Anthony.
0: Oh, Dave, I, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying your insights. I mean, it's extraordinary. You're quite right that there's not an awful lot that's good about getting old as a children's writer, you know, watching the years pass. And every single year that passes takes you one step further away from the from your audience because children stay 10 to 15, and here I go sort of 50, 55, 60, et cetera. Um, but there is a wonderful thing that happens now, ben, and it's not just in sort of, you know, literary festivals or, or where I'm doing sort of writer writery sort of appearances. And I can meet somebody who works, as, you know, in the media, in television, in the BBC, or or in in the in the news, and they're thirty something years old. And just for a minute, I see it in their eyes that moment when they recognise the writer that they were reading when they were ten years old. And something yeah. really wonderful happens. No matter how sort of snarky they're going to be about me, and the article they're going to write, there is just that moment <laughs> of wow, and it's him, and this is Alex Rider, the guy that I read yeah. in bed when I was twelve or, played games about with my best mate when I was whatever. And it's it's a lovely thing. And that's, you know, it's also a testament to the value and the power of reading. The books we read as children stay with us all our life. Films and television and theater and other things may may, may linger, but, but there's something, because the act of reading is such a creative act, you know, when you think about it, when you are reading with a child or if a child is being encouraged to read on their own, the actual brain power that you are exhibiting, putting the words together into sentences, the sentences into paragraphs, the paragraphs into pages, building cities, filling those cities, filling them with people, hearing the people talk, seeing them move. It's an incredible act of imagination. I've often said that actually reading and writing are sort of creative counterparts. They, they're not that dissimilar from each other. And that is why, of course, any child who has the fortune to have parents who surround them with books and storytelling and fiction, grow up with with. Obvious advantages, which are which are which are tangential. That's not going to say they're going to be richer than the other kid, or they're going to be better sports, you know, football players, or whatever. But they are going to have a sort of a an ability to communicate, a confidence, and a sort of a and a, a, a colour to them. It's just a sort of a, a shine, if you like. And it comes, and I've seen it now for so many years that I have no doubt about it was anymore. It comes from reading and from literacy. Wonderful stuff, Anthony.
1: You said that your children, one's children, should know everything about you, both the good and the bad. Now, this is an interesting idea. Why is that important to you? Where did that stem from?
0: Well, I think it stems from my own peculiar upbringing, where my father was very distant from me. And as you said, one of the things that I've never quite understood is why when he learned I wanted to be a writer, he couldn't be more encouraging and sort of excited about the idea, but instead ridiculed me and made me feel that it was sort of a a stupid ambition and one that I would never achieve. He died quite young, so these are questions I've never been able to ask him. Why would you do that? Why would any father want to discourage their child? I grew up with the absolute determination that I would be the opposite parent. I would make better mistakes than my parents made. You know, my favorite poem is the famous Larkin poem, um, they muck you up, I I I, I, I won't use to swear with that. They muck you up your and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just to you. That was me as a parent, finding the mistakes I was gonna make with my children. But I was determined of of, of, of something. So what was I would hide nothing from? They would sort of get the wart and all dad. And I think that that's, you know, we have remained an incredibly close family. I'm very, very proud of both my sons. Both of them got engaged this year, so that's sort of, you know, oh, another big watershed. It's, talking to you makes me think to myself, God, how I, I used to be just like you once. I was young with a three-year-old kid and I was sort of young dad and all that and <laughs> such. Um, and, and, and it is it is such a wonderful journey that you're on, um, but you know, I'm at sort of the later stages of it now, looking forward, forward, not very much to the dreaded G word. Where I become not the dad but the granddad, I've told them they're disinherited if they ever call me that. By the way, but um, um but it's um, but it is it is uh, it's uh, yeah, we define ourselves, I think, at the end of the day by our relationships with our children. And I was determined that from the very start, my children would have every understanding of my life, so that when I'm gone, they won't appear on your podcast in twenty years' time and say, you know, he was so terrible, he never told us this, that, and the other, and, and you know, he didn't smile, didn't didn't support us. I've tried to support them with anything they've ever done. Well, it's
1: it's great for them they're so fortunate that you as their parent as their father figured that out because you know I'm tr- I am I try and have a relationship similar to that with my dad and we, you know after I you know kind of cracked the outer shell of, of, of Bob <laughs> we now share a lot and we talk a lot and we we love having a drink together and conversing and I've even taken to recording some of our conversations you know so that because I would love Evie to hear them but but his parents that that generation before it's all kind of shrouded in mystery really we we don't really know much about them you well, know and that's if, frustrating for him
0: now you know if there's one way that the world has changed for the better and it has changed for the better in many many ways of course it is that the, the the sort of what was used to be called the generation gap no longer really exists and as my children were growing up i found that i could talk to their friends i was never mr horowitz i was never sort of the old stern man in the corner you know, it was always Tony, Hey Anne, come over, you know, let's have a, (laughs) let's, you know, and that, that, you know, that lack of respect, the absence of respect, the vanishing of respect has been only good because it's, it helps the younger generation to understand us. And it helps us to try and keep ourselves a little bit younger and not simply to sit back and say, oh my goodness, whole world's going to head in a handcuff." You look at young people today, you can't think that you have to think the exact opposite because there is so much optimism and so much, you know, good faith and so much determination to succeed. Um, and you know, it's funny because I don't have to talk about my sort of family. We, you know, indeed I meant to sort of, you know, with my son, one son in politics, and the other in sort of social media uh, with his own company. Uh, I'm very respectful of their space, but I can't just sit here and be proud of them. Well, they'll they'll love hearing that. I think there's also
1: something really nice in uh, you. Your, your dad getting on with your mates.
0: Forgive me for jumping in here, but one of the things you have is a parent, you know, who is alive, and you should cherish that because it's interesting. When a lot of my friends um, have parents who have become problems, Alzheimer's and various illnesses and convalescent homes and, and sort of financial worries. But, but to lose your parents so young, I was 22 when my father died, only just to my 30s when my mother died. My father never met either of my children. My mother only met one of them. And, you know, it is it is a sort of a, there's a strange emptiness there, a sense of incompletion, a sense of, of that there's no closure, but I've never managed to make peace with my childhood or with them. And on the one hand, that may fuel my writing and it therefore may help me to a certain extent. I often to think to myself that I should be grateful for the sort of the, you know, the hideous prep school I was sent to and for the sort of the cruelty of so much of my childhood. It has been the flame that continues to burn to this day with all these books I'm writing. But at the same time, not to have my parents there, not to be able to come to an understanding of what they were doing or why they did it. So it's always been you know, there's a big question mark for me over, over my own life and it's and it's their it's their absence that, that puts it there.
1: Yeah, I mean as you say, people who, who have their parents around and are able to kind of break down any boundaries if, if they exist and are able to become friends is 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 vitally important and such a special thing. And and what I was gonna say is I, I think it's really nice it must be nice for you that you like your son's friends. I think it's a really nice way of gauging how good a job you've done at raising someone that the people who choose to surround themselves with your children are good people. You know, I think that must, that must be quite satisfying. that they call you Tony and they want to have a gym with you and you get on with those
0: guys. Um, my son calls me Tony. He's the only person who's allowed to do so. <laughs> in fact. Uh, um, well, you, you know, the word good people, I think, is the important thing there. I, th- I mean, my view of, of parenthood has always been that your job really is to get your children to about the age of 18, and to hope that they will be good people, and kind people, and nice people, and leave the world in a slightly better place than, than, than that in which they find it. But the, beyond that, actually, it's their choices. You know, if my if my children had decided to become, I don't know, um, you know, anything from sort of mountaineers to marionettes to, to dancers to to, <laughs> to, to, to surgeons to to, to, to to bank robbers, that's their choice. It's their choice, not my choice. All I can do is provide them with the building blocks for which they can make the choice and make sure that everything is lined up there in terms of books and education and 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 kindness and, and family and all the things that matter and then let them get on with it and but you are right the fact that i really you know adore the girls they get to marry and 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 do get on very well with all of their friends is a sort of you know quietly says to me that yeah i got those building blocks right a hundred percent and well done
1: you and this leads us nicely into uh something that i ask of, of all my guests um What would be your best piece of dad advice for for any parents, the subscribers that are listening right now, whichever stage of parenting they're at or whether they have their first child on the way, what would be the one thing you would want them to take away?
0: Gosh, that's a very, very difficult question because I'm not good on giving advice. I'm not good on taking advice either. (laughs) And I always worry about sort of, you know, sitting there and pontificating about anything which to do with fatherhood. I suppose I would give the obvious advice. Enjoy every minute of it. It's, it moves so quickly. Blink and you've got adults it, you, adult kids getting married. And um, yeah. Yeah. just enjoy every day and particularly every evening. Um,
1: your two sons hear this podcast back in 15 years from now. What would you like to say to them?
0: It was true. I didn't <laughs> lie. Whatever you two <laughs> may be saying to each other, I was never saying anything except with truth. My feelings for you and where I've come from. Don't you dare say otherwise. I'll come back and haunt you. (laughs)
1: I'll come back and haunt you with some of the finest outwards we've had for that section of the podcast, (laughs) Anthony. Very nice. Um, It has been an absolute joy. As I said at the very beginning of the podcast, I'm a huge fan. My entire family are huge fans of your work, Anthony. So I'm really grateful for your time and I know that you've been recovering from COVID. So to take the time out to talk to me, I'm really grateful. Thank you.
0: I've enjoyed every minute of it, Dave. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
1: Uh, The latest in the Hawthorne series, The Twist of a Knife, is out on the 18th of August. Anthony Horowitz, thank you. Thanks. Anthony Horowitz. Don't forget his latest book, the next in the Hawthorne series, The Twist of a Knife, which is a great read, is out on the 18th of August. You can pre-order it right now. Give the dad pod a follow, nice comment and review wherever you get your podcast. That really does help out massively. And a few shout outs right now to people who have done just that, including Jason Elwell, who says this is simply a must for any dad or parent. Wonderful insight on the experiences of many different parents and their children and a lot to resonate with. Sam Coolstock says, really enjoying the podcast. Very funny, honest and informative. Grant M62, love listening to these podcasts. Funny, interesting and even a bit sad. Just like the bit about watching films over and over again. My daughter used to cry, rewinding the VHS. Sam the Monkey too says, informatively informal. Love these. Varied guests, straight talking, massive range of experiences and dad situations to learn from. Often has me laughing out loud like a weirdo whilst I do the weekly shop JCBNG says a little gem in an uncertain world you provide a warm mug of goodness in the form of the dad pod, informative cathartic and makes you realise as a dad no matter who you are what form of life you come from we all have the same worries and problems well thank you to all of you for all of your kind words about the dad pod they really do mean a lot, I'll be back soon with another episode thanks again for listening